Scripture passages this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus chapter 2. We'll start with 1 Timothy on page 1,847 in your pew Bibles. And you'll see why I left this one to the end of the sermon series. Starting in verse 8. Paul has instructions to Timothy on how to order the assembly of God. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Also Titus chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1 here so we can have a bit of context. Paul's instructions to Titus on how to order the churches in Crete. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, uh, temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hearts, minds, and hands of his people. We've been doing a series on biblical manhood and womanhood, and we started by discussing the created order, Genesis. What that means, what kind of impact that has, what kind of effect that should have on the way that we think of the difference between men and women, male and female, and how that works itself out in the home, the church, and the broader culture. Then we looked at men's role, more particularly in the home. What does that look like as a leader, as father, as husband, modeling Christ? Then we looked at women in the home. What's that look like? Mothers, wives, uh, to model the submissiveness of the church to Christ, the head. There's this concept of mutual submission as well, um, this idea that we are both uh, 
our, our ch- each other's. And my body belongs to my wife. My wife's body belongs to me. And when that works perfectly, when that's both happening, uh, we have this beautiful complementary uh, picture going on that presents the gospel. Um, then last week we discussed, well, what is that? Okay, so we see it in created order. We see it in the home. But what does that look like in the church? And we looked at men's roles in the church and how the historic doctrine, the historic interpretation of the Scriptures all the way up into the 1960s has been that men are the ones who are to be deacons, elders, pastors. Men are the ones who are to spiritually represent the leadership, headship role of Adam in the garden. Like I said, if Adam is the first church, if, uh, if Adam and Eve in the garden is the first church, um, because those are the first two elect people on earth, uh, Adam has this leadership role. But what about Eve? What about Eve? And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about women's roles in the church. And uh, yeah, I'm a little bit nervous about this. So bear with me. Recently, when I was uh, working on putting together this sermon, uh, I found a video that a group had put together entitled, Seven Reasons Why Men Shouldn't Be Pastors. And basically, it was uh, a bunch of women leaders in the church, could have been women uh, who were in different denominations who allowed them to be pastors or whatnot. And they took a spun on the cultural ways in which we speak about this. When, when us conservative folk talk about how women shouldn't be pastors. So I thought I would share this because it's going to give us a good bounce-off point. Number one, men can still be involved in church. They just don't need to be ordained. The children's ministry is always in need of male leadership. Right? Two, some men are handsome. They could be too distracting for us on Sunday. Sorry, guys, I know, I know. Three, they're too emotional to be pastors. Go to a March Madness game and tell me I'm wrong. I don't get emotional about sports, but I'm just not much of a sports fan. Number four, male pastors who have children might be distracted by the responsibility of being a parent. You kind of see what they're doing here, right? Number five, Jesus was betrayed by a man. How can men be trusted to lead? Number six, about once a month, male pastors get really cranky. Number seven, men are still vitally important to the life of the church. They can sweep sidewalks, rake the leaves, fix the church roof, and maybe even participate in worship on Father's Day. Now, there was an article written about this video that was done in about 2016. I want you to hear what the creator of this video has to say. Elena Ramsey, Sojourner's Women and Girls Campaign Director, told the Huffington Post that the staff wanted to revive the message of this blog in a new medium. After celebrating Women's History Month, they wanted to look forward and try to honor the future of women's leadership. Quote, this is her speaking, we're all equal in faith, yet women still struggle to be heard or taken seriously in their congregations and communities. Ramsey told the Huffington Post in an email, 
quote, the messages that women and girls receive undermine their sacred worth when they aren't represented in the pulpit or are restricted to leadership roles based on traditional gender norms. And this is what she ends with. It's 2016. It's time for churches to support women's leadership. I open with that because the argumentation going on in this video and from this particular woman is an emotionally driven argument. No matter how you say this, us people who believe in the complementary roles of men and women are painted as the bad people because we're the ones not letting women be women. It's an emotionally driven argument. Not only that, but it falls for something I like to call, I just lost it, but I'm going to get it, chronological snobbery. What do I mean by that? Chronological snobbery is this. It's 2018, people. Get with the picture. But what does that have to do with what God's word tells us about this? This is not about devaluing women. And that's why I think these cultural ways in which we speak about women are also inappropriate. We do not have a robust view of what women can do in the church. We do say, well, we need some help in the children's ministry. Or, well, you know, you can cook up some meals. We do think like that. And, it's, and it falls short of what God's word teaches us. But that is not a reason to abandon what the scriptures tell us about complementary roles of men and women in the church. So, as a reminder, we are arguing for in this sermon series something called complementarianism. God's created men and women equal in their essential dignity and human personhood, but different and complementary. And that is different than what is often called egalitarianism. And that's the idea that men and women are equal, and there are no role distinctions proper to men and women in the home and in the church. This is our theme this morning. Last week, I said the leadership role of Adam is spiritually represented in the church. And this is what I want us to think about today. The helpmate role or the helper suitable for him role of the woman in the garden is spiritually represented in the church. And we're going to kind of have the same outline. I want to go back to the beginning. I want to look at the garden and I want to see how that picture is painted for us of the helpmate or the helper role of women uh, in the garden is, is painted. And then I'm going to look at some Old Testament examples, some of the women in uh, the Old Testament, and then we'll go to the New Testament and we'll, we'll look at those passages that we read. So let's go back to the beginning. In the garden, we read these words again. The Lord said, Lord God said in verse 18, Genesis 2:18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man, and the man said, the man sung over her this song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So we see here in the garden this picture. The man is created first. The man is placed in the garden to rule over the garden and to keep the garden, to guard the garden, and to cause the garden to be uh, flourishing and growing and work the garden, right? This, this ties into the concept that uh, people who tend gardens and vines are called husbands, right? Husbandry. Um, so this is the man's role. He is called to cause the garden to blossom. blossom. He's, called to call, he's called to have the garden grow. And then the woman is given to him so that together they can fulfill this creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. Fill the earth with worshipers of God. This is something that the man cannot do by himself. We discussed this. This is something that the man cannot do by himself. He needs the help of his wife. He needs a helper suitable for him. And that's exactly what the woman is. She is suitable for him. She is a helpmate to him. She is essential. She is needed. She's not inferior. She is complementary. Of course, the fall happens, right? The fall happens and this changes things. This distorts, thi- distorts things. And we need to understand the order of the fall, what the events that occurred, right? Because we're going to get back to that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as part of Paul's argumentation. The serpent sneaks into the garden. Adam is not fulfilling his role. He is not guarding the garden, Right? The serpent comes up to the woman and begins speaking to her, begins to put doubt in her mind as to the words of God. She is tempted and eats from the, free, from the tree of the fruit of knowledge of, evil, of, of good and evil. And then she gives some to her husband. We need to remember, Adam is the one that's held responsible, Right? The Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you come eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? He, God, comes and speaks to Adam. Adam, you're the one responsible, right? But look at the curses. The one who receives the largest curse is the serpent. Then the woman receives a curse, great pain and childbearing. Sorry to remind you about that, Angie. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Adam now has to work the ground, the sweat of his brow. It's important for us to know these things. It's important to know that this is a reality that's rooted in creation prior to the fall. The, the man and the woman have complementary roles. They are unique, they are made for different purposes, and they must fulfill those purposes according to God's created order. When we don't, we have this disordering that's going on in our nation today. When we don't understand why God created us uniquely, male and female, We have all the different things that we see in our culture today. Transgenderism, homosexuality, effeminate men, so on and so forth. This is a very deeply practical issue and it helps us see 
with the proper lens, a biblical lens, what's going on in our culture and our society. So if the woman is to fulfill this helpmate role spiritually in the covenant community of believers, we should see that play itself out through the Old Testament examples. Verse Peter 3, we read about Sarah who was submissive to her husband. And man, talk about a husband that would be difficult to be submissive to. Abraham keeps passing you off as his sister every place he goes, right? So we're not talking about perfect people here. We're not talking about sinless people. We're talking about something that looks a little messy. But we have in the Old Testament, Sarah. We have even examples of what we would call unique circumstances in which Miriam plays a leadership role in the covenant community. That's Moses' sister. But even then, we see when, when Miriam comes to Moses and says, why are you the leader? Why are you the one that God speaks face to face, right? God puts leprosy on her. Many of you might remember Deborah. She's one of the judges, a prophetess, the one who judges Israel. But even if we look at that particular story, we are told that man, Barak, was scared to go out and battle by himself. And he said, I'm not sure that the Lord will be with me, so I want you to come with me. And she says, okay, but just keep in mind, now my name will be attached to this event, and you will not receive the glory. We have Hannah, we have Abigail, we have Esther. We have even a unique and interesting story, the time of Josiah when he became king, and they found the law of God buried somewhere deep in, inside, the, the, inside the temple in Jerusalem. He brought it out, and they read it, and he ripped his clothes because they had turned so far away from God, and he said, go, go and hear from Holda, the prophetess, what the Lord says to us. What the Lord says to his people. Maybe I'm saying these things, you're thinking to yourself, well, Carrie, you're saying that women are supposed to have this role of helpmate spiritually in the covenant community, but you're reading about Deborah, you're reading about Holda, you're reading about Miriam. These are unique situations and circumstances. We talked about last week how prophet, priest, king, the three offices in the Old Testament are held by men, are held by men. But you have these unique moments, these unique opportunities, and as John Calvin says, those unique moments don't overthrow the standard. Don't overthrow the ordinary way God works. So we see women in the Old Testament functioning in this helpmate role in the covenant community. We see them functioning as the caretaker of the home and of the children and the upbringing. We see them serving humbly. What about the New Testament, though? Remember, last week I said... The argument for allowing women in the offices of the church is focused upon the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the idea that Jesus Christ coming, dying, and being raised from death 
three days later, and ascending to the Father, and the pouring out of the Spirit has caused a shift that we should be able to seek, has caused a progressive reality of changing, right? It's often communicated like this. Slavery was okay in the Old Testament, which I would disagree with, but this is how it's put, right? Slavery is okay in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there's some modifications going on with slavery. And now we, without a doubt, condemn slavery as evil. We're growing in our sanctification, this progressive idea, right? Or Old Testament, polygamy is okay. New Testament, polygamy is not okay. I also disagree with this, but I'm just wording it here for you. And so now we know that, fill in the blank. That's the argument. That's the, the force of the argument is put on the, the reality of change that's come with Jesus Christ. And I don't want to deny that Christ has changed things. Ephesians 5, that picture of the husbands being Christ and the wife being the church and the way that they're supposed to call to love each other sacrificially and serve one another in love, and it, that's beautiful. That's a change. But the importance of looking at the garden and getting the garden right is that in Genesis 2, these complementary, distinctly different roles of men and women are held. And the follow is not what brought them about and the, the redemption in Jesus Christ is not what ends them. But Christianity itself was a radically positive view of women. In fact, if you go back and you do some church history, you will find that many of the first converts, the reason why the church grew so quickly in the Greco-Roman world was that prominent women were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe even a glimpse into that reality would be to look at the story of Lydia. Why, why, is, this, why is this shocking? Why is this Strange, because when Jesus came, he was radically pro-women, made in the image of God, called to serve God. How do I know this? Because he talked to the woman at the well. Even when his disciples said, ooh, he shouldn't be talking to a woman by himself. How do I know this? Because he placed value on Gentiles when the Jews said, that's scum. How do I know this? Because we are told that women followed him around, serving him and his disciples. How do I know this? Because the first people that he appeared to after his resurrection were women, and the first people who proclaimed the gospel to the disciples were women. We don't have to shy away from those positive pictures of women in the New Testament in order to perfectly, in order to appropriately portray the fact that men are called to the leadership roles of the church. We don't have to shy away from those. We don't have to shy away from Phoebe, the servant. We don't have to shy away from 
Priscilla and Aquila. But those positive depictions of women in the church do not mean that women can now serve in the offices of the church. What I think those positive depictions of women in the church do for us is they call us. They call us to a renewed vision of what it means for women to be members of our congregation, to be part of the body of Christ. Because so much of this conversation has all been about, no, 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 no. No, no, we must protect, we must put up shields, we must make sure, we must make sure. And it has not been about creatively thinking of ways that women can serve our church. I'll give you a few examples. I think it's absolutely appropriate and often very much a good idea for the council to have a women's perspective. Not because they're members of the council, but because 50% of the people that belong to this church are women, and because oftentimes men don't know how women think. You agree with that, right? But I said this last week, and I believe it's true. I believe Cottage Grove does a very good job of considering ways that women can serve this church, and not just in children's ministry, not just working in nursery, not just playing piano, but other ways too. And I'm very proud of that. Let's look at the New Testament scriptures I mentioned, and I'll, I'll bring to mind some more of those things as well. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. This is a very, very controversial text, and I want to make sure that we understand it, okay? Paul is giving instructions on worship. He says in verse 8, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing. Some say this means that only men should pray in church. I don't think that's appropriate since if you read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is given instructions about how women should pray and prophesy in church. So um, this is not that. Verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God I believe Paul's saying here, uh, if, we, if women are to be in the, the, the assembly, the body, uh, worshiping and praying as well, I would say, then uh, this is how Paul wants us to go about doing it. Now, many people who are arguing against the historic interpretation of this text would say, when you say, um, Paul says that women should not have authority over men or teach, will kind of retort like this. Well, do you also think that women shouldn't have braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes when they come to church? The accusation is that since we're literalizing, we're taking literally the words of Paul that a woman shouldn't have authority or teach, that we should literalize or take literally these words as well. But actually, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is given a principle here. He's particularly dealing with The idea that a woman's primary beauty should be her godly character and not her looks. It's the same thing that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. You want to braid your hair? 
ladies, wear gold or pearls or expensive clothes. That's fine. But if your heart is, I want people to gaze upon me and see how amazing and wonderful I am, then your heart is wrong for worship. Because our gaze should be placed upon Jesus Christ and all his glory and all his wonder. See, modesty doesn't necessarily particularly only mean what I dress. It means the way I put myself forward. Am I putting myself forward as somebody who wants to distinguish myself from everyone else in the riches and glory and wonder that I have? Or am I putting myself forward as somebody who wants to lift high the glory of Christ? Paul says, Outward beauty should not be your primary beauty. Your beauty should be ten good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. I don't think this means that women should never say a word in church. I do believe this means that Paul... Uh, is teaching that women are not to have an uh, authority over a man that is a leadership role, nor are they to teach in the assembly of God from the pulpit. The authoritative, te- authoritative teaching of Scripture is what I mean by that. The authoritative preaching of God's Word. Well, does this mean women can't teach? Of course not. Many women have the gift of teaching. They teach other women, as Titus 2 talks about. They teach children. Women write books. Women speak at conferences. And all of that is beautiful and wonderful and appropriate. And has nothing to do with whether women are called to the leadership offices of the church. And this is Paul's argumentation. Paul's argumentation is not cultural, depending on what's going on in Ephesus at the time. Right? That's one argument. An argument that, well, in Ephesus, they had this deal with, that was going on with women who were prominent women, leaders in their community, and they were kind of taking the reins of the church and taking things over. But that's not our problem today so that we can disregard what Paul's words here are saying because they're cultural. Paul's argumentation is created order. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So here's Paul's argumentation. Paul's argumentation is this has to do with the way God created us, the order in which God created us. Adam created first, then Eve. Adam created first is basically Paul saying, Adam, federal head. Adam, headship. That's his role. Eve, second Helpmate, helper suitable for him, necessary, important, needed. In verse 14, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman was deceived and became a sinner. Now, men, please don't use this verse on your wives. Please don't. Just don't memorize verse 14 and just say it whenever she makes you mad, okay? What Paul is saying here is not that Adam wasn't deceived, because Adam was deceived. He fell under the deception of the serpent. But it was the woman who was deceived first, and we already talked about how Adam holds ultimate responsibility for that, right? Verse 15 is challenging, but I want us to understand it. 
Paul says, unless the women of the church of God who are made in God's image and covered in Jesus Christ's blood would think that they have nothing to do with the furthering of the gospel and the furthering of the kingdom of the God, of the kingdom of God and the furthering of the good news of Jesus Christ, lest they would be kind of downtrodden and think to themselves, man, I wish, I wish Eve wouldn't have been so stupid. Verse 15 says, but women, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now this is a very debated and controversial verse, but I think I can bring the meaning home to you and I'll just say a quick comment about Titus chapter 2 so we don't continue on too long, but What verse 15 is saying goes right back to Genesis 3, 15. The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. What does this mean for for women who can't have children? It means that one of the roles that women have is not simply in giving birth to babies. If you have kids, that means you're saved. You better have at least one baby, right? Right? That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that we have completely and totally undervalued the role of mothers in our society today, for sure. Women serve through childbearing through nurturing, through raising children that continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that the influence of a mother cannot be compared to anything. Am I the the leader at home? Sure, right? But if my children want to unburden their hearts, they go to their mom. If you think that I have a more influential role over your children's lives than your moms do, then you don't understand. Mothers nurture. Mothers serve. And that is their primary role in the home in the raising of the children. I don't mean that means they cannot work, okay? And I will say this quickly about Titus 2. Titus 2 is positive instruction for us on how and what women should do in the church. It says older women should teach younger women, okay? Older women should teach younger women. We're told older men should teach younger men as well, okay? So this is a kind of discipling reality going on in the church. Older women should teach younger women how to love their husbands and how to serve at home. And some people have taken this text to mean that women are not supposed to work out of the home. What I would do here, and give you a caveat, is to say that women's primary role should be in raising their children. That does not mean that they can't work outside the home. And if you want a scriptural example of that, go to Proverbs 31 and look at the most excellent wife. Her primary role is in 
waking up and making sure her children and her servants have food. But she sees a field and buys it and turns it into a vineyard. So she's working, but she understands her primary role as in the caring and raising and, and nurturing of the home. Now, anybody can have a house, but a woman makes it a home. And if you've ever been into a bachelor pad, you know what I'm talking about. We, as a congregation, are called to see the value in both men and women in our church. And to see the complementary roles that go on with men and women in our church. And to see that we're together for the gospel. This is not a competition. This is not a power struggle. This is about the glory of God. And this is about saying that God wasn't wrong when he created men and women. And called them to distinct, unique, and complementary roles in the home, in the church, and in the broader culture. That's a picture of the gospel. That's not a picture of an antiquated, archaic, patriarchal view of things. So in response to that uh, article at the beginning, it's 2018, people. We need to start remembering that God has called us to be men and to be women what that means biblically and scripturally, what that means in our homes and in our churches. And when we do, you will see that as the rest of the world deteriorates and falls apart, we will be as a shining light, a beacon, a lamp put on a stand for people to see that what God has created is good and is purposeful and is meaningful. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us. It reflects the good news of the gospel. That this is something that is glorious and meaningful and good. And that we should not be ashamed of it. This idea that you have created us uniquely male and female, created us to work together for the gospel, to, fer- to serve and to function in our unique roles. Lord, as the body of Christ, may we never think that one part is greater or more important than the other, that one part is more glorious and more meaningful than the other. But your scriptures tell us that the body of Christ needs every part, that the eye cannot say to the ear, I do not need you, or the ear to the eye, I do not need you. Knit us together in love and in service and help us, Lord, to both be your servants, men and women who have committed themselves to be humble before you and to serve you with gratitude for the salvation you've given to us in Jesus Christ. We say all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.